0: morning's passage is from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. You turn to that passage, and while you're doing that, I invite you to stand, if you're able, to honor the Word of God with our attention. Again, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Now you could put a period there, couldn't you? That's a good sentence that is a powerful sentence. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's power, the power of God for salvation. but Paul, the author of this letter, writes that he's not ashamed of the gospel he He gives us that and he he tells us the why of why he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed because it's power. The gospel is not cause for shame but rather confidence for rejoicing because it won't fail to accomplish the purpose for which it is being proclaimed. That is, the gospel is powerful to save. And that's my confidence even this morning as as I proclaim the gospel to you and as we give attention to the gospel this morning together, that the Lord is powerful to save. So why is Paul eager to preach the gospel to those who already believe? This is the circumstance of this letter to Rome. He's already told us near the beginning of the letter as we considered last week that their faith is proclaimed in all the world, it says. Well, he's eager to preach the gospel among those who have already believed because those who believe will not be put to shame by their faith in this sure and powerful grace. And yet... That's not the whole sentence. There isn't a period there. The whole sentence is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And they're still going to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This morning we consider the second half of the sentence. It's not only that the gospel is powerful to save, The gospel is powerful to save everyone who believes. And then Paul tells us what he's thinking. When he says the word everyone, he's thinking both the Jew and the Greek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do your work in the midst of your church this morning. Lord, that your word would be uh, accompanied by your spirit to apply to human lives. That you would go into places that We have not opened to you, but you, because of your great power, would open to yourself, and that you would grant faith to believe, and that you would encourage and equip and make eager to proclaim, that we would become worshipers of your great name all the more because of spending time with great confidence in your word this morning. Your gospel, your power to save, everyone who believes. Teach us, Lord, this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is where we are, to everyone. It's where the passage goes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The emphasis here is on everyone. I think the emphasis of the whole second part of the sentence is that word, everyone. The reason that Paul says everyone is that he already has on his mind what he's about to say, the Jew and the Greek. Paul is strengthened in his resolve, that is, he's not ashamed by the fact that the power of the gospel is for the whole of humanity, Jew and Greek. I hope you already know that. I hope this morning you're not like, really? Well, I hope that's not news. And if it is news, you should say, really? But if it's not news, you should still be amazed. This is the power of God leveraged for the whole of humanity. You understand the impact and the implications of a gospel whose power is so great that it's for everyone without respect to ethnicity or prior religious experience or or cultural heritage. The gospel is powerful for salvation. The gospel is God's power, his mighty arm extended to the whole of humanity to save those who believe. There are many implications. I want to just name a few. The first God is no local deity. He's not the God of the Jews only. When he says everyone, he means everyone. In fact, later in Romans, Paul says it explicitly. In Romans 3.29, that'd be a good verse. It's a reference here to the side in your margin. Romans 3.29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes. Yes of Gentiles also, since God is one. And the passage continues, and I encourage you to go and read there. There are some who would say the gospel and all that Bible stuff is just fine for you religious types. So maybe that's even you this morning. Maybe you're here just with a friend because you have lunch this afternoon. Maybe even as you've sort of played around hanging out with these religious Types, you're thinking it's just one of those religious types thing. Yes, it's powerful for some, but I just didn't grow up with that kind of emphasis, or maybe I've turned away from it. Others would say that Jesus is the God of Christianity, and that might work fine in America or in the Bible Belt or, or maybe in Western culture, but there are other ideas, other religions, other philosophies that work just fine in, in other parts of the world, they would say. Again, This just isn't a claim that's compatible with the Bible. If that claim is true, now it's a claim you can make, but if that claim is true, then Christianity is false. We have to come to terms with this. The Lord is God or he is not. He is not simply a local deity. And if he's God, he is the God of the whole of humanity. This is the God of the scriptures. A second implication, the gospel is not bound by culture. Well, this is a really important one. The gospel is the power of God. It's not a persuasive philosophy or a mere practice of a human culture. It doesn't rise up from among men, it comes down with the authority of heaven. The claims of Christianity transcend the claims of any singular culture among men. The claim of the gospel is the power to save everyone, irrespective of culture, it is a bold claim, and it's a claim that flies in the face of much of the pluralism, multiculturalism of our present age, because it is the clear claim of Scripture that God is powerful to invade, not to leave alone, but to invade cultures. The gospel is the power of God, the one God, over everyone and everything. And then third, an implication, if the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone, then the gospel ought to be proclaimed to everyone. Now, I think that this is the driving point that Paul is going at for us. And one of the main things, these are wonderful implications for us to consider, things that I hope are not terribly new to you, but do you actually believe that the gospel ought to be proclaimed to everyone? A gospel that is the power of God to save. A gospel that is not a mere local religion. A gospel that transcends human culture, including yours. Including yours. is a gospel that ought, we ought to be eager to preach in every local region and in every human culture. Do you see? It has implications for my life. And yours, and particularly for our proclamation of this good news. There are many implications flowing from this reality that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone, but Paul has already given the application that he has in mind. That is, he is not ashamed of the gospel, but rather he is eager to proclaim the gospel to the church and in the city. Are you? Are you eager? in light of the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Are you compelled? Are you eager to preach? I just want to pause there for a second and say, ask that question. I've already told you there's a right answer, and nobody likes being honest that their answer isn't the right answer. But be honest. No, I'm not eager. I'm terrified. I feel not equipped. I really don't care. Honestly. I mean, I, I care because like I know you're supposed to, but like as I, I wake up in the morning and I, or I hang out and watch Netflix in the evening, I think I I really just want to be happy for a little bit and hang out. Be honest about your answer. Are you eager to proclaim? The gospel, be honest with that answer. Bring it to the Lord and let his truth do business with where you are. Now, the passage continues. It's not just the word everyone, the the power of God for salvation to everyone. What? Who believes? Who believes? The gospel is universal in scope, but not in specificity. Listen, there's no people group, no nation, family, culture that is excluded from the power of God for salvation. You cannot look at any group or people or family or culture and say, the the power of gospel isn't, isn't for them. No. This compels Paul to preach, even in Rome. Make no mistake, in this moment in history, if there was any place on the planet that the faithful would say, the gospel is for lots of places, but the gospel is not for Rome. They're too far gone, and all that they deserve is hell. And yet Paul is preaching this gospel to a church that's already established in Rome, eager to preach the gospel In Rome, because salvation is to everyone who believes. The design of God's leveraging his divine power is to bring salvation to all who believe. There are two main themes in Romans. Two main themes that are going to run for 16 chapters. We've already begun to confront the first main theme with the word everyone. That is, Paul argues for the unity of the church under the reality of God's one gospel to save. Do you hear it? What's the the theme? A unity of the church under God's one gospel that's powerful to save. And the other theme is that salvation which is by grace alone by the power of God leveraged for salvation is taken hold of by faith alone. This is the other major theme. The, The gospel is the power of God for salvation by faith. Again, I hope you know this. I hope that's not terribly new information to you. But there are some who presume upon the kindness of God. And I think this might be a challenge to some of the edges of our understanding of the gospel and the integrity of our faith. Just yesterday, I heard this faulty illustration given. This illustration is a story of two checkpoints at the Berlin Wall, one Guarded. One checkpoint was guarded by English soldiers and the other by American soldiers. I have no idea of the veracity of this illustration, but it illustrates a point. The story goes that when desperate residents of East Germany would come to that checkpoint, the English soldiers would explain that in order to cross, one has to have the proper papers and have explicit permission to enter. And so most were turned away. And then American soldiers would also explain at their checkpoint that in order to cross, one has to have the proper papers and explicit permission. But sometimes they would also explain that if they were to take a smoke break around the corner of the nearby building, say in 10 minutes, It would be impossible for them to observe the crossing, nor to check if their papers were in order. And so many escaped passing through the American checkpoint. I have no idea if that's true, but it illustrates a point. The commentator that I was listening to, cultural commentator, made this application. It seems to him that heaven will be much the same, he said. There really is no one whose papers are really in order, just those whose lives are almost right, but not just right. And so, surely, whoever's guarding the pearly gates will have to turn some blind eye to most everyone who passes through, he said. Now, I hope you can hear. I hope that you're actually getting a little nervous. Where is he going with this? I hope you can hear in this illustration how this cultural commentator makes two mistakes. First, He presumes on the kindness of God. And friends, we cannot presume on the kindness of God. We have to listen to his explicit revelation of his grace and mercy. The gospel is not the news that when it comes to sin, God looks the other way. There's no cosmic smoke break by which God does not have attention upon our desperate need for grace. The gospel is the power of God to save by the revelation of his righteousness. It's right here in the next verse. The revelation of his righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And centrally, that the Lord himself looked sin in the face and bore the full wrath of righteous judgment for all who believe. God is not like a group of soldiers who selectively abandon their post. Jesus is the Lord of genuine mercy. Jesus is the Lord of sacrificial grace. He doesn't look the other way when sinners enter his holy kingdom of heaven. We know from our first parents, Adam and Eve, that he removed them from his good creation, his garden. He powerfully crossed, rather, into enemy territory on the rescue mission for all who would trust in him to carry them to safety on the other side. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He invades the enemy's space. Don't presume on the kindness of God. In so doing, you cut off the power of amazing grace, the glory of God in real rescue. And there's a second error in this cultural commentator, he gives the sense that there are those who enter the kingdom of heaven who are are almost there on their own accord. They just need a little bit of help to make it through that last leg of the journey. And the gospel, we're told, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not those who are mostly good enough, not those who confess that they're mostly lost but they just need you to look away on a couple particular points, but rather those who confess that they are lost, destitute, desperate, in need of powerful intervention and rescue. The gospel is powerful, power for those who believe, that is, those who trust in the righteousness of Christ in their place fully and completely and in every way. Everyone who is believing. Now you look at your translation more than likely, and most of the translations go ahead and and say everyone who believes, but there's one more clue in this phrase about who believe. The Bible manuscript is actually a present participle. Stay with me now. Present participle, it conveys the sense of everyone who is believing. The present tense is an ongoing participle. Participle kind of gives you the ing sense at the end of a verb. It conveys the sense that everyone who is going on in belief, who is believing, there's never a moment in which the believer may say, okay, good, I believed and I am saved. We did that. All right, and we're all good. Now I can transfer my trust to my walk to walk out this life that I now have having believed, past tense. At every moment that we walk in this life of salvation by the power of God, not even by our belief, every moment of this walk is a walk of trust. God, I believe. And you, by faith, are working out this salvation and will keep me to the end. The power of God is an eternal power, and that power continues to work daily. We are united to this power, this grace by faith. Daily, we're saved for only one reason. The power of God saves us. And so daily, our faith must be nourished by the proclamation of grace. And so Paul is eager to proclaim grace even among the church so that they may know him and place their trust in him. So here it is again. It's clear why Paul is not ashamed but compelled. In, in verse 13, just a, a couple verses before, he's eager to reap some harvest among you. In verse 12, he says, He's eager that. We may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Faith is crucial to our experience in taking hold and walking in daily the life that we have by the power of God. Are you compelled to preach the gospel? Are you confident that there is no people, no culture, no ethnicity, no background upon whom the power of God is not effective to save? Are you eager to follow Christ into enemy territory? Do you believe that he has gone out to save? Will you go with that out, with the news of salvation, that the very king himself has gone out to rescue those who will trust in him? Friends, that is our our call. If we believe that the, the gospel is, is powerful to save everyone who believes, we proclaim so that everyone would believe. That that encourages our, our eagerness. This is power. I think it can save you. If you will only believe, God's power will save you. Man, what bold eagerness that purchases for the church. And we have this last phrase in our sentence. It's the power of God. This gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then we have this phrase. You could have put a period there. But no, he gives us to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think that's where he's going. This most precious sentence ends in this way, I think, for a reason. Jews and Greeks are not a new topic in the sentence he's not like ah oh, i'll just throw this little doctrinal wrench in this beautiful sentence but rather this phrase about first to the jews and also to the greeks is a demonstration and agreement with the word everyone like even that and particularly in rome especially particularly that the thrust of paul's expression here Jew first, then Greek, is not to create a distinction between two, but to demonstrate a unity in the everyone. He's joining all of humanity, particularly relevant in the church in Rome, the Jew and the Greek, under the same banner of the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Grabbing Jew and Greek and putting them over here in this glorious everyone with a call to faith. So why this statement, Jew first? I mean, I would have been cool with it. You know, we're going along, you know, to everyone who believes Jews and Greeks, you know? That's not what he says, is it? There's so much that we could say, and it could be a whole message. But let me just note a few things. The first gospel promise came to our first parents, Adam and Eve. After confirming to them the wages of their sin, which is death, Jesus speaks a curse upon their enemy, the serpent. And that curse winds up being itself a promise for all of humanity. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this promise from God is the seed of, Of the gospel. The offspring of the woman, though struck by the evil one, will crush his head. This is fulfilled in Jesus, who was struck on the cross and who rose victorious over sin, death, and the devil. We have a seed of the gospel right here, given to the first parents of all humanity. So the first revelation of the gospel is to the parents of everyone. And if God declares it, there is a call to believe. And yet, God chose to reveal the history of redemption to a man named Abraham. who This Abraham, who became the father of a chosen people. So the promise has already gone out to everyone, but he reveals this plan of redemption to a particular person and his offspring. It's Genesis 12. Now just read the, the second part of this promise that God gives. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, he says to Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And, hear this, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Like which families? Sounds to me like that's everyone who believes. We have again a statement of this gospel being given to this man who has this history of redemption to play out in his children, the Jews. This is the revelation of a promise of blessing to one man and his offspring through whom he will bless, the Lord will bless all the families of the earth. So how is the Jew first? I think the first and main issue is an issue of revelation. News of redemption, this gospel that we call good news, was revealed to the Jews from Abraham to Moses to David to the the prophets and so many more. Jesus himself, in speaking to the woman at the well, he says, you worship what you do not know. We, that is the Jews, worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. This redemption is being worked out among us, and we've had a front row seat to redemption by their access to the Hebrew Scriptures, by their access to worship at the temple. The Jews knew their Lord, and they ought to have recognized him when he came and dwelt among them. And hear this, some did. Some did. And this is the second way that the gospel is first To the Jew. Yes, the Lord revealed the plan of redemption to the Jews. And and when he came, it was some from among them, a remnant who believed and were saved. The Jews not only received a revelation, a revelation of the history of redemption with a pinnacle in Christ. The Jews were also the first to receive salvation by grace through faith. And also, third, the gospel itself was accomplished by a Jewish Messiah, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. As Paul himself said in the first verses of Romans, was descended from the Jewish King David according to the flesh. He's clearly making a point. The gospel came by the righteous obedience and sacrificial love of a Jewish man, Jesus, our Lord. That Jew, the God-man, Jesus the Christ, rose in victory and sits on a throne in heaven from which he'll come, and he's going to gather everyone who believes by the power of his gospel. This Christ, this Lord, this man reigns. And I'll say these last two together. As the apostles, apostles go from town to town and city to city, they make every effort to enter first the synagogue, And there they preach the gospel to the Jews. And it is those who believe by which the gospel is proclaimed and spreads. The gospel came first to the Jews, and it was these first Jewish faithful, our brothers and sisters, in this one powerful gospel to save by which the gospel has come to the nations. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. It's true, and also to the Greek. There are two relevant and important verses in Romans that hold out this same sort of unity and priority. And again, I would encourage you to take these in your notes or put them in the margin of your Bible and and spend some time in these passages later in this week. Romans 2, 9 through 11. This is an interesting one. In light of what we just read, the power of God to save, the Jew first and also the Greek. There will be a tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Everyone. The Jew first. And also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And I think by that he is referring to faith. The Jew first. And also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. When judgment comes, there is no blind eye to a favored few. There is a gospel that looks everyone in the face. Tribulation and distress, glory, honor, and peace. It's clear that the Jew is not first out of some innate privilege for which they also become first in judgment. If they were first if they were first in salvation due to some innate good, then they would also be first in judgment for some innate evil. And this isn't what the Scriptures share. This just isn't the argument of the Word. The priority given to the Jew is a matter of grace. It is a matter of God's choice in redemption to make revelation to a people, among whom this precious gospel would be handed down from one generation to the next until Christ is held up high for all to see. Everywhere grace is given, the Lord requires that that grace is received by faith. So as much as this grace was given year after year and generation after generation, it was only effective for those who received it by grace, by faith. For all who reject this gift, judgment remains to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Scripture teaches that the early Jews to whom the gospel was preached often refused Christ because they stumbled over the reality of a suffering Messiah. But it's also true that often the Greek refused Christ because grace and resurrection was folly to them, foolishness, not up to their standard of education and philosophy. And so these people together, Jew and Greek, are united in these passages, both in salvation but also in judgment for those who fail to believe. One more passage in Romans, Romans 10, 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So clearly he is not trying to create a dis unity by pulling these two apart. He's trying to proclaim an everyone by putting these two together. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. And here we have that faith again, right? Again, we have this expression that these two ethnic groups, so radically distinct from one another, are united under one Lord because of grace bestowed on all. Again, there are so many implications for us here, and Paul will unpack many of these implications throughout Romans and all the church ought to to be able to recognize the priority of revelation that God has given to the Jews and the promises of the gospel that first came through these fellow saints. And it was through the eager and sacrificial proclamations of these early Jewish saints that the power of the gospel multiplied and increased even to the ends of the earth. I mentioned also in our first few weeks in the introduction of this series that about a decade before Paul writes Romans to this church in Rome, all the Jews, all of the Jews, including the Jewish members of the church, were expelled from Rome by the persecution of a pagan emperor. Now, they were allowed to return after a matter of a few years, just shortly before Paul wrote this letter. And when the Jews returned, it's not difficult to imagine Think with me for a moment how difficult it would would be to reintegrate a unified church after such a long absence in these two radically distinct cultures. It's a major theme of Romans that the church is one church. I think it's probably because of that historical circumstance, but we've found that we don't seem to be able to kick that historical circumstance. There is one gospel of grace. Grace one faith by which everyone who believes may be saved. Now, as we are coming to a close, I want to to draw our attention to what this means in light of the everyone. Looking at our passage again, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone precisely because there are none who are not in need of what this gospel brings. What unites us in this gospel is, first of all, our need for rescue. Neither Jew nor Greek have any hope apart from the gospel. It's as though Paul is saying, you, hey, you, Roman believer, in your glorious city, your high Greek culture, remember, you've been saved through a gospel that was first revealed among that scorned people, the Jews. You know that, right? A Messiah on a cross. You worship this Messiah, and you've been saved by the power of that Lord. And you, hey, you Jewish believer, with all your scriptures and all your redemption history, remember that you've been saved through a gospel that is for everyone who believes. Your Messiah has come, and he is the one Lord and God of all of creation. You remember the scriptures. Now, enter into fellowship with your Gentile brothers and sisters. For everyone, whether Jew or Greek, of any ethnicity or heritage or culture, friends, there is, first of all, one gospel. And this gospel is the power of God. There is one way. This gospel must be received by faith. Do you believe it? Have you received that gospel by faith? And there is one hope. This gospel is salvation everyone who believes. Do you believe it? Is Is there an eagerness for worship and an eagerness for proclamation? Because there is one hope. The gospel power remains true for Christ's one church to this day. And we need to hear this to this Day, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We're not ashamed of the gospel because we believe that the gospel is powerful to save everyone. We will not be ashamed on that final day when everyone who believes is saved, just in line with the gospel that we have preached. Therefore, take hold of this grace through faith and you will be saved. Today, every one of you, cling to this good news, this power by faith, lean and trust in Him. Today, everyone. And are you eager and bold to proclaim this gospel upon which you lean? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would convict us, Convict us of our idolatrous leanings. While we have confessed faith in you and you have saved so many in this room, we also confess that we daily lean on other things. We've placed our trust in additional places, but there is no other hope, only one hope, only one power, only one gospel, only one way. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strip us by your mercy and power of our idolatry, and Lord, so many of those idolatries are also cause for why we are not eager to proclaim. We don't believe, we think that there's something kind of special about us in the way that we were raised, and that's basically why we're Christian. Lord, we pray that you would strip us of that idolatry and that we would come to believe that your gospel is powerful for everyone so that we would be bold, eager, and not ashamed to proclaim. And Lord, let us see Let us see your power to save, even today, so that we might be emboldened to say, yes, the gospel has saved this one. And we rejoice. Thank you, God. We trust you and your power. And we thank you for your grace in history through Israel to this day that all the nations would be glad. Thank you, Lord. We pray